You're listening to All That Matters. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. And I'm Gwen Mann. All That Matters is a show about arts and culture around Alberta. Each week, we take small bites out of a big question. Gwen, welcome to the All That Matters team. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> uh, welcome to a world of intolerable and endless suffering. Excuse me? <laughs> well, I don't mean this show specifically, but the world in general. Like, have you heard of guinea worm? I have not, but I have heard of uh, guinea pigs. <laughs> uh, well, these are smaller than guinea pigs. Uh, guinea worm is a parasite that's on the decline, only common in a few countries in sub-Saharan Africa now, but it just seems deliberately cruel. If you drink unfiltered water with guinea worm larvae in it, the worms can grow inside your gut, and then after about a year, the female guinea worm will look for a place to exit your body, and whatever spot they pick will form this really painful sore Usually they pick a joint, like a knee, and apparently it causes this intensely painful burning sensation. But that's not even the worst part, because you can wind them out to speed up the process, but they can be about a meter long. And if you rip apart a guinea worm while you're extracting it, it can cause infection, which can even be more dangerous. And that's just one of the millions of parasites in this world. Like, what kind of universe creates a niche for animals that do that as part of their life cycle? So you're saying that the world is an unfair place? Well... A lot of it sure seems that way. Look at all the pointless deaths of people caught in the crossfire in war, all the impossible choices we go through in our lives where there is no right choice. There are just choices that might cause a little less suffering or a little more suffering for those around us. My question is, what's the point? You know, why do we suffer or what makes suffering worth it? Well, today on All That Matters, we've got two stories about that question. One that asks why an author would deliberately create suffering for her characters. And one that asks, what makes years of suffering worth it as an artist? Well, to start off, pretend just for a moment that you are a fiction writer with unlimited time and money. What would you write about? What kind of characters would live in your fictional universe? And how would your characters cope with suffering, the suffering you as a writer have created for them? All That Matters reporter Erin Carter talked to author Marina Endicott about suffering in life in general as well as in her newest book, Close to Hugh. Okay, so I'm here with Marina Endicott, author of the critically acclaimed Good to a Fault, and her latest novel, Close to Hugh, and that's Hugh, the name Hugh. It's a pun. So would you like to introduce yourself and your newest book to us? <sighs> I have, I'm still learning how to talk about this book. Um, it's about Hugh, who is... A man in his 50s runs an art gallery, not a particularly successful one. He's an art teacher, and he's um, he's terribly sad. It's an existential tragedy, really, except that uh, I hope there's funny parts. <laughs> yeah. His mother's dying in a hospice, and he can't really handle it. So instead of dealing with her and her death, he f- looks at the people around him, the people who are close to you and says, how can I fix them instead? Since I can't fix this one gigantic problem that all humans being all human beings have that we die, maybe I can make this living part better for some, some of the people I know. And some of the people he knows are his old foster siblings, Della and Newell, from when he was a kid and his mother uh, had multiple breakdowns and would send him to live with a, a babysitter, Ruth. And then the kids that they're having, so... There's a group of uh, of young people in the book who are just on the cusp of going to university, and they're all artists or uh, either visual artists or they're in theater. So it's about the 
Venn diagram of the circles of youth and age and life and death and art and love. I was actually at your book launch and the moderator, I think... Jackie Baker. Yeah, Jacqueline Baker said that she sensed an undercurrent of fearfulness and sadness in your books. Uh, So do you want to speak to that, to that undercurrent of fear that she said that she observed? Did she say fear? I'll have to get after her for that. (laughs) I think there's an undercurrent of dread. Right. I think what there is, and I guess that everybody gets their own material dealt out to them, but I think what there is in all of the books that I've written so far is an awareness of death. There's an undercurrent of that kind of pain and dread of approaching death. And I don't know why that seems to be something that I'm writing about a lot. But I think if you're going to make somebody, if you're going to ask readers to read a pretty sad, tragic book about death, you better give them some treats along the way. So there's got to be life packed into it too, or else... If, if it's just about death, then who cares? But if it's about the things that death deprives us of, that's more interesting. And if it's about art and um, love and the way that we combat and defeat death, that's even better. That's I, am, I am curious. I'd like to know more about your philosophy on, on suffering. I remember at the book launch when Jacqueline Baker was asking you about it, about why there was suffering? I I think that was her question. You'd said, it's the human condition, man. And I thought that was so great. (laughs) Well, can I just say the same thing again? It is. I mean, in a way, I think it's, this is sort of an existential book about, because this is what we're dealt. This is the hand that we're dealt. We live for a while and then we die. And so does everybody around us. And that's what it is. Therefore, we have to find a way to live in the knowledge of that and yet not collapse from sadness. And so I think that's why art can't, for me, it can't just be tragic. It has to be funny, sad, and entertaining. It has to be, it has to have the the, the duality of life and that existential struggle of how long will we be here and how soon we'll be gone. Plus, but it's really beautiful what we're in. Right. So your philosophy is sort of to acknowledge that suffering exists and then use art to make it better. Yes, I think that's a very good way of putting it. All is suffering, but we can have a pretty good time while we're suffering. And especially if we are involved in making art. There's a character called Ivy we haven't talked about yet. Mm-hmm. Ivy's an actor, in her, also in her early, late 40s. And she's lost her memory, so she can't work anymore. But she is able to do uh, any work that you do with scripts in hand. So she's sort of making a living going around the country doing workshops. And she's sitting in the workshop with all these high school kids, suddenly just loving everything about them and theater. And the whole joy of being in a room with a bunch of kids making art, genuine art, with it for an afternoon and getting paid for it. Don't forget that you're getting paid for it. And the, the hilarity that that's even possible in society and the joy of it kind of overwhelms her. <laughs> yeah. 
One of the things that I found interesting is this is a hugely art-focused, art-centered book. We got Hughes Gallery, there's lots of talk of visual art, and then of course theater is this giant undercurrent. Yeah. Um, and I almost find it interesting because stereotypically people talk about Alberta as a province that's hostile to art. So what are your feelings on being an Albertan writer writing a book about art? Well, I set the book in Ontario. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but actually, I, I mean, I know that politically, you know, the, we could say that Al the Alberta political climate has not been gigantically art-friendly. But I think we can, as people, kind of ignore the politics of it. We have to be aware of it. We have to take responsibility for making sure that art continues to be made, that there are granting organizations that arts are supported, both artists and the art they make. All of that, yes. But on the other hand, when we're just at home doing our work, or just in the classroom reading Romeo and Juliet, or doing whatever bit of art we're doing, we are the same as people everywhere. And art just seeps up from everything. It doesn't, it can't be it can't be contained or constrained. It, it burbles up no matter what we do to stop it. So you acknowledge that suffering is a fact of existence. It burbles through your book along with the art that improves the lives of characters and um, I guess the interpersonal connections that improve the lives of characters. Do you think that perhaps in my internet generation or in society in general, there's a tendency to ignore suffering or to think that suffering shouldn't be a part of life, to resist suffering. I hear my friends say all the time, I just want to be happy. Do you think that maybe a problem is that we don't suffer enough or we're not okay with our suffering? That's a really good question, not one that I have an easy answer for. I think, I'm not sure that it's an internet generation problem. I think the thing is, though, we have a lot of ways now that we didn't used to have to alleviate just plain old boredom. So we can turn to our phones. I was waiting for it in the hall, going through Twitter. There are a thousand, you know, Tumblr, all the ways that we can alleviate boredom. And that means that we don't, we aren't forced to sit with ourselves and think the way that we have been in the past. So we're maybe there's some work of sitting and thinking that we have to make sure we still do. I, I, I really only say this for myself because I know that I don't have to face up to some of the things that I should be thinking about and facing up to because I can look at Facebook or I can write an email or I can be messaging somebody nonstop. My daughter's gone away. Like Della's daughter is about to go away, and, and um, I miss her terribly. But I don't have to write her a letter. I can just message her. I don't have to miss her even, in fact. I can just send her 16 messages a day, and she'll send them back to me. I wonder if, there may be, if we may be distracting ourselves to death from distracting ourselves from some of the hard work of thinking and understanding that humans have to do. But I also trust that when we have to do the work, we can still do it. So when we're stuck, you know, in a hospital waiting room or in a hospice and there's no internet, we'll do the thinking then. Mm -hmm. 
Well, maybe a good way to get some of that thinking in and to reflect on our lives as human beings is to read Marina's book. That's a good close idea. Close to you. <laughs> thanks to our reporter, Erin Carter, for that story. And thanks to Marina Endicott. You can find Close to Hugh at a bookstore near Hugh. You're listening to All That Matters from CJSR. And I'm Gwen Men. And I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. All That Matters is a show about arts and culture around Alberta. Each week, we take small bites out of a big question. This week, what's the point of suffering? So, Marina had one take on why artists make fictional people suffer. Our next story asks what makes real pain worth it in our own lives, if anything. I spoke to one Edmonton artist to get her perspective. Here's Maria Valencia Alvarez. I am Maria Valencia Alvarez. I am a dancer. I come from Mexico, from Guadalajara. Um, And I have been here in Canada for two amazing years and I just love the weather. (laughs) Yeah, so I started dancing when I was like three years old. I was a really hyper kid and my mom didn't know what to do with me. So that's why she put me in all the activities that she could my mom threw me into reading lessons, music lessons, gymnastics, ballet, um, and swimming. And by swimming, I still don't know how to swim because my teacher, he smelled really bad. <laughs> so I didn't like it. And so for now, I don't know how to swim. <laughs> Before my brother was born, my mom had a miscarriage one year before my brother was born. And it was at night, and she didn't know that she was pregnant. And for some reason, I was so scared about that night that I just, I was sleeping with her. And then she woke up, went to the washroom, then came back, and she was feeling so bad. Suddenly, like, she just starts, like, jumping in the bed. She was going into a shock, and then just flip around, fall down on her back. And then I was just like, oh my God, what is going on to my mom? And then I was just like, jump off the bed and start like shaking her and like smacking her. And then I was just start screaming. And then the neighbors, they just came for me. And that was so nice of them. Like, I, I actually like, I cannot believe like how, how people can be like so selfless. And they were just straight into my mom, helping her, picking her up, emergencies, like, ambulance, it happened so fast that I just remember getting into the room with my mom on the bed at the hospital to really like see her like that fragile and breaking down. It was an eye-opening for me. When she got out of the hospital, some months later, she was pregnant again. So I was like, yes, I'm having a brother. (laughs) Yeah, so the life works really like in funny way so yeah I think that I was really hoping for having a brother that all the experience that going through my mom miscarriage makes me realize that I really needed that person in my life like I really need to have that bond with someone not just to be like a um, a single what do you say a single kid or like a Yeah, I I never see myself like that. Never, ever. Even like a lot of people said like, oh, it's the best thing that you're the only child. I'm like, no, I really wanted a brother or a sister. And when I got the news of him, 
it was like so great. I remember that I was like sitting there like outside when he was like he was born and he just screamed three times. And then he, here he was this tiny red thing with black hair. And then he has like his hands closed and his thumbs between his index fingers like that. And he was just with his like arms crossed. And I was like, yeah, it was so, 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 so nice. Um, when my brother was born, I had to pick between all the activities that I was doing because my mom couldn't draw me anymore to like everything. So my dad was going to take care more of me. And he actually said to me, okay, kid, you have to choose just one thing because I don't have like that much time because of work. So I decided pursuing dancing and ballet specifically at that time. Um, yeah, so that's where I started everything when I was around six, six and a half, seven years old, something like that when I said, okay, this is what I want to do. I will just focus on dancing. I picked dancing because I like that when you're like expressing through your body, you can have like this reaction in people and make them like forget about all the things that they have been going through their life. I think that was um, one of my mom's friends that she was going through a very difficult time in her life. Um, I think she was splitting or something like that. and. For her to come and watch us like a full like it was like just like a school festival you know like it wasn't something like that big but for her to having that time that she saw a lot, a lot of these kids just dancing around being happy on stage and and see how she was hugging us everyone not just her kid just to everyone i think i was like oh this is what i want to do for a living <laughs> like yay <laughs> so i think that that really like helped me too Committing to ballet, you have to make decisions and be really more mature than, you have to be more mature than the rest of the kids. Like when you are 12, 13 years old, you have to make decisions that actually are going to change your entire life, for your entire life. I mean, like until you like go to the heaven or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so I was in class and I was uh, approached by my teacher and she was like well if you want to pursue your career you have to do like a boarding school she did this like in the middle of a class and it's just like super eye-opening at the same time really overwhelming because you're around like all your classmates and then you're in a recreational student and suddenly you're like on the spotlight and they're just like okay you need to make the decision now if not the time runs in dancing that is something that it's really hard that you might have the talent, but if you don't have that person that pushed you to get through the decision or to the breakthrough that, okay, you want to do this or not, this is the time to like do it. It was like kind of like um, hard to make the decision. So I came home and we were like, hey mom, <laughs> so I'm thinking that maybe I should proceed going to that boarding school. So my mom was really surprised. And at the beginning she didn't like, wanted that much to happen but that's when my brother came in and he was like well you know what mom like you should let her go if it's her dream and it's her goal just let her try it you know like nothing else is going to happen nothing bad is going to happen we're good kids <laughs> I mean we're really hyper but um we are good kids you should trust in her and she has her wings now to fly away and whenever like you have that time um to fly away she always can come back with us so she will be fine you know so that's when my dad brought me to the boarding school and we were crying on a bed sitting down because he was like, oh my God, like my kid, like she's, I'm leaving her here. And it was in a different city that I have never lived there before. And it was like kind of like 
at the same time you have to grow up so fast and you have to be so mature about a lot of things and yeah so it was it was hard but I think that the person who made this happen was my brother he said he was like telling my mom okay no you have to let her go she's not going to be here forever she can come back and visit you of course but you need to let her go and and see and figure out her dreams it was hard it was fun it was eye-opening it made me build so really good friendships and relationships and and make me like realize that I can be like a really nice person too and to be responsible about my acts and what I was saying. I have to take my shower really early in the morning and then we share the kitchen so I have to do my groceries and everything since I was like really really young <laughs> so it was really fun because I always went like inside the car with my older friends because they adopted me <laughs> and they were just pushing me through the supermarket. I was like, yay, taking things. So that was nice. When I got sick or anything, they were the first ones to be taking care of me. And of course I did the same thing for them, like whenever they needed me. Um, I got the news that I was moving to Canada when uh, I got married with a really smart guy and he received a scholarship to go to the U of of A and that's when I was like we're moving to where Edmonton I was like where does that come from and then he was like we're moving to Canada honey um so we got here and two years later I'm things like I'm the most accomplished person in the world currently here in Canada I'm teaching in Edmonton um I'm a certified American ballet teacher from the national training curriculum teaching at Peak Dance Center and I'm also dancing with Cine Thesis Dance Theater. Uh, we are just doing the fringe shows and yeah. So I'm just jumping here and there, being a happy bunny. <laughs> yeah, my family and I, we sacrifice birthdays, weddings, anniversaries, vacations. Um, invest a lot of money in my education and in my brother's education to get to the point that I can really give back to them what they gave to me when I was growing up. And I think that seeing that big smile on my mom every time that I call her and she's like, oh, my little girl, you know? It's like so like overwhelming. And then to see how um, they are so proud of me and how they can really go outside and be like, hey, look, this is my kid, or hey, look, this is what is she doing in Canada. It means a lot from them because not everyone has that opportunity to do it. My brother, he's a really, really important and strong person in my life. Whatever it happens, it's always like texting or calling, or even if I don't like, um, I don't text him or call him, he just send me a picture or whatever, and we're like, oh, we're connected. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's nice. And he's a dancer too now, so. He actually started dancing like when I moved here. I was like, okay, this is cool. Now you're deciding to become a dancer when I move here to Canada. Yeah, I hope so like soon he can come and, and we can do something together. He's a really good tapper. I don't tap. Thanks to Maria Valencia Alvarez for speaking with me. You can find her teaching at Peak Dance Center in Edmonton. That's Peak with a P-I-Q-U-E. And thanks to her student, Julia Segbor, for connecting us. You can find Julia in the air on an aerial silk near you. You're listening to All That Matters from CJSR. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. And I'm Gwen Mann. 
Each week, we take small bites out of a big question. This week, what's the point of suffering? So, Gwen, listening to what Maria said, what do you think? Is it fair to say that eventually creating a good novel or a moving dance performance makes suffering worth it? I think the end result is what makes the process, in this case, worth it. Yeah, like having that moment with her mom on the phone, being like knowing that her mom is proud of her. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The stories that we've heard today are mostly small-scale pain, like loneliness, depression, isolation. Do you think there's an upper limit? Do you think that that's true for deeper pain too? Like, does eventually making good art make it worth it? You know, losing a child or or being being displaced by war or famine. I think deeper pain consists of all the small scale pains, so it's kind of like a bunch together. And I guess that applies to you know losing a child or being de- displaced by war or famine. So it can redeem it. You think like making something good out of it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that. Like for something to be good, like for you to, you know, achieve your goals, something must be sacrificed, whether it be like suffering or losing someone, losing like friendship. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, OK, here's a question I don't have any answer to. Um, on that note, uh, one of our reporters, Kay Rollins, uh, she and I were sitting at the table at Found Fest a while back and we were talking about um what makes good art. I feel like we might have been talking about Lana Del Rey. Um, I have this impression (laughs) in my head that Lana Del Rey, you know, she hasn't had to go through very much. It seemed like she got a recording contract really young and she had like a really comfortable upbringing, Mm -hmm. you know, parents who just sort of bought her way basically into the music industry. And she has an incredibly beautiful voice, but it, you know, I, I feel like her music is not, doesn't have a lot behind it. Um, and we were talking about the idea that like maybe you have to go through something painful as a prerequisite for making good art. And then she looked at me and she's like, but Chris, you know, we had a conversation a while back where I asked you if you were an artist and, and you said, yeah, even though I don't necessarily like paint or um, like write songs, I, I think making radio is, is, is art. And she asked me, you know, do you think you've gone through some profoundly deep suffering in your life? I was like, well... I've gone through some things, but I wouldn't say profoundly deep suffering. So uh, then we sort of like sat in this question of like, can you be an artist without having profoundly suffered in your own life? I don't know. What do do you think, Gwen? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there are artists like everywhere and I'm sure like not each one of them have suffered in the past. So maybe that's that's an open ended question. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of people would have different thinkings of what good art is. So what I think is, you know, I don't really... I don't really look at art and like think about the 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 guy behind it, like what experience that he had, really, like, what suffering that he had. Like I would look at the art at face value. Oh, interesting, <laughs> yeah. interesting. So like when you hear a song on the radio, like you just want to interact with it on that level of right. like right, right. Like I won't necessarily look like behind it. I think about what the artist had in mind when he was you know doing the piece of music or. That kind of stuff, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we will have to leave it there. That does it for this week on All That Matters. 
All That Matters is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. Thanks to our reporter Erin Carter for her story today. If you have questions, comments, ideas about the show, send us an email. We read everything you send. We're allthatmatters at cjsr.com. You can find all our episodes on our website, allthatmatterscjsr.wordpress.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. We're at ATMCJSR. Our theme music is by Dokashi Teru. Additional music today by RoboDub, Satori, Josh Woodward, Airtone, and Rasheen Murphy. We've been your hosts, Chris Chang and Phillips. And Gwen Mann. Thank you for listening. Thank you.